Our first lesson comes from Genesis chapter 14, beginning at the 17th verse. When Abram returned from defeating Cato Laomer and the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God, of, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread nor the strap of a sandal, nor anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where does the desire to give generously come from? Oh no, it's that time of year again. It's a tithing and generosity sermon. Bar the doors, buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Where does this desire to give generously to God come from? It's like the new preacher that's in the congregation. And as he gets up to the pulpit, he says to his congregation, if I'm going to pastor this church, this church is going to walk. And the whole congregation answers back, amen, brother. Let her walk, let her walk. And he says, and if that church walks, then that church is going to run. And the church, again, amen, brother, let her run, let her run. And if that church runs, it's going to fly. Amen, brother, let her fly, let her fly. And then he says, and if this church is going to fly, it's going to take a lot of money. And the congregation responds, let her walk, brother, let her walk. <laughs> Martin Luther said that there are three conversions a person goes through. A conversion of the heart, a conversion of the mind, and a conversion of the purse. Many Christians struggle with giving generously to God. In fact, there's a recent set of statistics that show just how deep this struggle goes. Of American Christian church-attending adults, these statistics say that 22.1% give nothing in a given year. These are active church-attending adult Christians. 22%, nothing. The majority give 2 to 3% of their income every year. Only 9.4% of Christians give 10% or more what we would call generous giving. And I love the fact that the sociologists say that since the data was self-reported, the actual figures are probably worse. Where does the desire to give generously to God come from? Well, it comes from knowing the gospel. 
It emerges out of an experience of the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That God's gracious generosity towards us is what builds in us a generosity in response to God. As Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, once wrote, gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. We see it in the story of Abram. If you'll turn with me to Genesis 14, you'll see in this story of Abram and Melchizedek, a story of Abram giving generously to God because God has provided to Abram God's own possessions. Abram knows that what he has is God's own possession. But not only does Abram know that God has given him his own possessions, but Abram knows that God has given him the power to acquire the possessions he has. That it's the power of God and not his own power and strength that's enabled Abram to have what he has. But not only does Abram know that God has provided to Abram with God's own possessions and that it's God's own power that has brought him to this place, but Abram gives generously to God because God has provided his own priest to Abram to receive that Thanksgiving offering. And that priest, well, there's more to this priest than meets the eye. So first, Abram gives generously to God because God has provided to Abram God's own possessions. What Abram has is God's. Verse 19 in the prayer that Melchizedek speaks over Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And in verse 22, Abram will go on to say the same thing about God. I've made an oath. I've lifted my hand before the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram understands at the core of his being that God is not just the creator, but the owner of his creation. God owns what he has made. And this idea of God being possessor, owner of creation, is rooted right in the creation story itself. The Bible begins with these words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Bereshit bara Elohim. You don't need to know Hebrew to understand that phrase, in the beginning God created. What you need to understand is that the word bara creates, in the beginning God created, bara is only ever in Scripture used for God. Nowhere in scripture will you ever find a human being or any other creature who baraz. Only God can create something out of nothing. Human beings, we fashion and shape and work God's creation, but those are different words. Only God creates something out of nothing, and therefore he owns what he's made. It's like a group of scientists imagining that they have outdone God in the ability to, you know, create life. And as, as the joke goes, they, they challenge God to a contest. They say, God, we don't really need you anymore because we now have unlocked the ability to create life itself. And so in the, in the joke, I guess, you know, God comes down and says, okay, well, uh, let's have a conversation about this. You want to create life? Yes. And, and they say, well, 
And he says, well, you know, back when I created Adam and Eve, I made them out of the, the dirt, the ground. And the scientists go and they huddle together and they say, well, you know, dirt, you know, amino acids, uh, DNA structures, complexities of genome. And they, they come back and say, yes, you know, God, we, we, can, we can make life out of dirt. And so they grab a big chunk of dirt and go off to their lab and God stops them and says, oh, no, hold on. Get your own dirt. <laughs> the conviction of God's ownership of creation is that only God can create something out of nothing. Not only does Abraham know, Abram know, he's going to be Abraham, the father of nations soon, but right now in Genesis 14, he's still Abram. Abram not only knows God as creator, but possessor. Everything that he has is owned by God. And this is why we're told in verse 20 that he gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek in this gratitude offering, this thanksgiving offering. This tenth, the, the tithe, 10%, is the Bible's sort of standard starting point for where generous giving begins. Now, you may have heard in sermons or just do an internet Google search, and you'll hear phrases like, the New Testament has done away with tithing. And I'll, I always respond in two ways to those statements that the New Testament has done away with tithing. Number one, that pretty much every person I've ever met who's trying to argue the New Testament has done away with tithing is trying to reduce the amount that they want to give to God. They're just trying to find a loophole to get out of that 10% as the starting point for generosity. And secondly... The New Testament does do away with something, but what the New Testament does away with is a righteousness that comes by living according to the law, right? So your tithing will not save you. It is only by grace through faith that you can be redeemed. But Jesus affirms tithing, and in fact, the New Testament call which seems to be always the case in New Testament ethics. Whenever you look to the New Testament to say, well, are you going to do away with Old Testament ethics? Jesus always seems to raise the bar further, right? It's, it's not just in, 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 in Jesus' mind, you can't just commit adultery. You can't look on a woman with lust in your heart. It's not just an issue of not murdering someone. You're not even supposed to be angry with them. And it's not about a tithe anymore. It's about beyond tithing. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, clearly good New Testament teaching. It's not obligation. He says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And just in case you want to read Paul and say, well, see, he said it's all up to me. And therefore, in my heart, I've decided that God is saying it's a small amount. Well, look at verse 11 of the same chapter. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, what Paul's saying is, don't you see he's blessing you generously in order for you to be generous? The call of the New Testament is always that we give beyond the tithe as generous giving. But here's the point. As you pray about what God places on your heart to give, as, as you prayerfully ask, what is God calling me to give? What is the definition of generous giving according to my relationship with Jesus as he places that on your heart? Here's what's important. Once you get to that amount, 
that percentage, that amount, and say, this is what God's calling me to cheerfully give, then here's what we're not to do. We're not to say, okay, that percentage, that's for God, and then we'll categorize the rest for me. This is God's, that is mine. The whole point of this passage is that it's 100% God's, and we simply get to live off a large portion of it. It's all God's. We get to live off a large portion of it. Just as 1 Chronicles chapter 29 says, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. See, Abram gives generously to God because he understands that what God has provided him with is God's own possessions. But not only does Abraham, Abram give generously to God because God has provided him his own possessions, but also he recognizes that God has provided the power for him to acquire and own what he has. It is God's power that has brought Abram to the place he is today. Again, that prayer from Melchizedek, verse 20. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Already in Abram's life, we see these incredible miraculous moments as he follows God and he goes into conflicts that are too big for him. Earlier in this chapter, it was a group of kings warring with another group of kings that could not overcome them. And it was Abram who alone took his people and overcame what several other kingdoms could not accomplish. It's these moments of miraculous victory that are proving the point to Abram again and again, it is not my power, but it is God's power that is bringing this success into my life. This is why Abram rejects the spoils of war that the king of Sodom offers him here. In verse 21, after he gives his tithe, his tenth to Melchizedek, the king of Sodom chimes in. He says, well, if we're going to start giving stuff away, uh, how about I get the people that you brought back from the war and you can keep all the goods. And what does Abram say to the king of Sodom? What does he say to the pagan king? He says, I have lifted my hand to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not receive a thread, a strap of a sandal, or anything of yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to possibly give their, I'm not going to give you any opportunity to steal the glory from God alone, that he and his power, not the power of pagan kings, he, my God, has made me succeed. His power and his power alone. See, Abram is rejecting the modern myth of the self-made man. Right? We, we live far too much within this myth within our Western culture. The self-made man, this idea that, you know, I am where I am and I've achieved what I've achieved because of, you know, good choices I've made. I look at the, you know, people around me and I think, well, obviously I made some better choices than they did. I'm a little more talented than they are. I'm a little stronger than they are and I've arrived where I am because of my own strength. It's what E.B. White once wrote saying, luck or providence is not something you can mention in the presence of self-made men, right? Because a self-made man has no room for God's action. But the reality is if we look at our lives and where we are now, we realize pretty quickly that I couldn't control where I was born. 
into the situation and the opportunities that have come my way. I think that I, I manipulated and created all these opportunities, and yet I realized that for some reason certain opportunities came into my lap and did not fall into another's. And then I look at my decision-making and I think, well, actually, there's been many times where my decision-making has been totally lousy and for some reason God has blessed me and saved me even despite my worst decisions and I am where I am, therefore, clearly, not by my own power, but by God's power. His strength has brought me to where I am. As Deuteronomy Chapter 8, speaking of the warning to Israel when they come into the promised land and things go well for them. When everything is growing and the calves are reproducing and you look and say, my word, I have so much. What does God say? Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, beware. He's speaking to people when they will one day become wealthy. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. I was in Vancouver this week for a couple days, and as some of you have heard the story before, Monica and I, newly married 20 years ago, starting grad school in Vancouver, absolutely dirt poor. Our first major fight, as I've told some of you before, in our marriage was in a grocery store near UBC campus in Vancouver over whether we could afford a cucumber. First major fight as a married couple. I was walking near my seminary, Regent College, this week, and I mentioned to Monica that I was near that same supermarket. And you know what she texted back? She said, you should buy a cucumber. <laughs> and I did. And I took a picture of it and I sent it to her. And my point is, I look at where my life is now and we all can do the same and say, when we compare to where God has brought us and when we honestly assess that distance we've come, we should be humbled at God's presence and love and grace and power and never come to the place that says, oh yes, I clearly have done this. No, you haven't. God in his grace and mercy and power alone has brought you where you are. And giving generously emerges out of seeing how far we've come by God's power alone. This is what Abram sees. Abram gives generously to God because he sees that what he has is God's own possession He sees that what he has has come from God's own power. But finally, Abram gives generously to God because God has provided his own priests to Abram to receive the offering. Verse 18, we read of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that he is priest of God Most High. Melchizedek, as priest of God Most High, is the very first reference to a priest in the Bible. This is the first time the idea of priest comes up. 
And we've got to understand how important this is for Abram to finally find a priest of God who can, on God's behalf, receive his thanksgiving offering. You see, a priest in the Old Testament stands as a mediator between God and the people who can receive offerings on God's behalf. Now, in the New Testament, we understand because of 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one mediator between God and man, that is Jesus Christ, that therefore what we call priests today are not Old Testament priests. We're not mediators between God and man. We're at best prophetic facilitators before our communities. But in the Old Testament, the desire was for a mediator to receive the offering on God's behalf. Can you imagine Abram's joy after walking for these many years with God, seeing all this material blessing come into his life, saying, I don't know who I can give it to to give it to God. I don't know who can receive it from me. When Melchizedek shows up here, the joy Abram must have known. Finally, I can give this gift of gratitude to God and God's official representative can receive it for me. After all these years, when I was in Ottawa, I made the inglorious decision in my parish to bring back the passing of the offering plate. My predecessor had taken the passing of the plates out of the service and had left a box out in the narthex where people could quietly put their gifts in. And it was for all kinds of reasons. But I was committed to bringing it back because I said, this is part of an act of worship. This is part of how we acknowledge that God has provided everything for us, that God is the possessor of everything we have, that God has given us the power to acquire what we have. And I was vilified by some, but as I would respond every time people raised concerns, I said, I just cannot justify getting on an airplane and flying to Nairobi and worshiping in All Saints Cathedral in Nairobi and watching the joy of a people in that cathedral who are by our standards absolutely dirt poor with joy in the context of worship, passing the plate and not doing so because a bunch of affluent Canadians are too embarrassed about the little amount they give that they don't want to pass in the service. I said, we must bring this back as an act of worship and praise to God. Because in the West, the problem is we so often want to privatize and individualize our gratitude to God. Oh, God knows I'm thankful. And I'll just, you know, he and I will do it in our own way. We'll figure that out. But in the Bible, the answer is always, there is a place where you bring your gratitude and it is to the temple. It is to the church. It is to God's house. This is where you bring your gratitude to say, I know that you are God and that I am not. Jesus, when he heals the leper in Luke chapter 5, what does he say to him? Feel the gratitude in your heart? No, he says, go to the temple and give the offering that is due so you may prove this work of God. We are called to bring our tithes and offerings like Abram into the house of worship, to the place that God has given us that we may show gratitude. Abram is overjoyed to meet Melchizedek because now he has a place to give his gift. But as I said before, we would miss the whole point 
And I fear we'd miss the whole gospel if we didn't realize there's a lot more going on with this priest named Melchizedek in this passage. Here's the gospel. This whole story of Abram and Melchizedek is meant to be a prefiguring moment. We sometimes call a typological story. It's meant to point to an even greater story. And that story is the relationship between Jesus and you and me. You see, Hebrews 7 tells us that Melchizedek is in fact a prefiguring of Jesus Christ and his own high priesthood. Melchizedek is prefiguring Jesus' high priesthood. Melchizedek, the name, means king of righteousness. Who else can we ascribe that name to? The fact that he's the king of Salem, Salem, which means peace, king of peace. And oh, how I love to tell the story. What does he do in verse 18? Melchizedek, the high priest, the king of righteousness, the king of priests, the king of peace, he brings out bread and wine. There is one author of the whole of Scripture. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and in doing so is prefiguring Jesus in his own Last Supper, bringing before his disciples bread and wine and declaring, this is my evidence of how I will provide for you. My body broken, my blood poured out. Jesus, the true Melchizedek, the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace, meets his people with bread and wine, a sacramental sign of what his provision looks like for us and the cost of that provision. Jesus bearing every sin in his body on the cross for you and me, for forgiveness, for new life with God. You see, this story, Abram's story, is our story if we can see it. Where does the desire to give generously to God come from? It comes from hearing the gospel. Many Christians struggle to give generously to God. And if we're honest, the reason we struggle is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what it would look like if we actually gave in to this deep well of desire to give generously to our God. Will my life be okay if I give in to this desire to generously give? Will my family be okay? Will it all work out in the end if I truly give in to this desire to give generously to God? But the true high priest, the true Melchizedek, proves to us that he will provide. What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 12? Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This same Melchizedek, the same high priest who pours out his life as proof of God's provision and love for us. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us all things? Our communion practice every week banishes fear and frees us 
to give generously, to trust that we can give into that desire to give generously. Because as we come to the communion rail each week, as we come to his table, here's what is happening. If I could take the words from verses 18, 19, and 20 and add all the full implications of this being a Christological story, if I can fully realize these verses for you in Jesus, here's what verses 18, 19, and 20 of Genesis 14 are, sound like to you as you come to the rail, as you come to his meal. This is what they sound like. This is what's happening. And Jesus the true Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, brings out bread and wine. He is the one true priest of God most high. And he blesses you. And he says, blessed are you by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies, including sin and death into your hand and you give him a tenth or more of everything. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.